Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 11th, and this is the Weekly Market Report. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you individual financial advice. This is for informational and discussion purposes only. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so I'm not going to go. I used to deep dive the Cameco quarterly results. I just threw up one of the slides here. Uh, they had a pretty good, what I would consider a pretty good uh, quarterly report and conference call. Um, there's nothing much to say except to say that uh, they continue, depending on how you feel about Cameco, some people don't like how they manage things, um, but they continue to make progress. They continue to, the business continues to get better. The comments and forward-looking guidance is positive. So I would suggest that you go listen to the conference call and uh or if you can get a hold of the transcript read the transcript and the question and answers are pretty good from the analysts so you know we like to look at the chemical results not you know from the perspective of it's the 800 pound gorilla in the room so you want to they're going to give you the best analysis of uh what's going on in in the you know uranium market so I mean, this is one of the slides I took from the conference call uh, slide deck. Uh, they added uh, 80 million pounds of long-term contracts uh, for uranium, 17,000 uh, kilograms of conversion services, um, transitioning to tier one run rate, Cigar Lake, 18 million pounds in 2022, MacArthur River, Key Lake transition to production, and uh, record UF6 production. So um, then investments in the nuclear cycle industry increased ownership of Cigar Lake and proposed joint acquisition of Westinghouse, you know, the nuclear assets from Westinghouse with Brookfield Renewable. Um, so like, again, I'm not gonna like go through all the comments and everything. I feel like it's positive, uh, some of the comments that were made and I mean, there's much, nothing much to say except for this uh, uranium and nuclear renaissance continues to trundle along uh, and uh, in a positive direction. So I think you just stay invested. Um, obviously, Cameco and Kaz Adam Prime, you can actually do, you know, discounted cash flow analysis and things like that. Uh, these are actual investments because they're actually operating companies that generate revenue, cash flow. Uh, as I've stated many, many times before, most people uh, are looking to be in the junior sector, which is uh, a different animal. That's a speculative endeavor. But the comments that we're getting are, you know, from Cameco are that we continue to be positive uh, on the industry going forward. Uh, the other thing that Cameco announced was this is uh, they announced the biggest supply agreement that they ever signed. Evidently, it's with the Ukrainian nuclear state-owned nuclear agency or operator. Uh, I'm a little bit, I don't know. I mean, is Ukraine going to exist as an entity? I mean, there's a war going on there. Okay, if you take this from the perspective of okay, 
there'll be type of peace deal and settlement and uh you know going forward i mean what's going to be the political situation the economic situation in ukraine so okay i get that you've signed this deal it's the biggest deal you've ever signed because obviously ukraine wants to get away from russian supplied uranium and fuel for its reactors and so but i wouldn't necessarily bank this because we just don't know the outcome of what's going on in the current uh warfare that's being conducted in Ukraine. I mean, will the government of Ukraine exist in its state in a year from now? Uh, what will be the outcome? I mean, of the war, and will that new will a new possibly government that comes in, or would that have the you know possibility of avoiding this and going back to the Russian supply? No one knows. So, anyways, it's uh, it's a pretty big deal if you look read the deal in the show, in the notes or in the uh, press release. But again. I probably wouldn't have made such a big deal about this like they did. I'm not sure this is going to, there's a lot of uncertainty around this. Nevertheless, uh, here's a chart of Cameco, the stock price over the last five years. Obviously, this would be the pandemic low when all stocks were sold sold off, basically. And you can see that you could have bought at the low. I don't know how many people did. I was buying, you know, ETF, the ETFs down here, but uh, so I was getting exposure to it, but you basically the low for this was about five bucks a share and the current share price is about 30 bucks a share. So basically in one, two, basically three years, you've got a six bagger. So you can see it's obviously, you know, done very well. It's trading extremely higher above its uh 200 week moving average the 50 week moving average this is a little concerning here you want to cost, you want to see higher highs and higher lows what we've got is lower highs recently and then we have kind of established a um you know floor that we haven't dropped through so is this indicative of just taking that pause that we've talked about before um you know over the last year after this big run up and then that we're setting the stage for a, a the next move higher. I don't know. I would say that the fundamentals are good, but you have, you know, you basically needed time to digest a, 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 a six times move, right? You're up six times in the largest uranium company. This isn't a junior miner. So for folks to say, you know, the problem again, as I've stated before, is a lot of people got in around here and so they don't have the benefit of understanding what was happening in the uranium market back here or back here. And you know, this is why I say you have to buy things with a that are out of favor that have a inflection, and you have to have the weather weather withal to sit and wait until you know this the big move happens, so you can get paid off. So um, I don't think this is over with. I think we're obviously going to go higher over the next few years, but um, we'll see. So Jesse Felder, somebody I follow on Twitter, I also get his, you can sign up for his, uh, he sends out a weekly uh, email and it's pretty good. Uh, it's free and uh, he has good information like this that make you think about things. And what he's showing here says the glamour stocks then and now, 
Uh, so you're talking about the dot-com fraud stocks, 1990 to 2002. I don't know how many of you younger folks were around for the dot-com bubble, but it's similar to what we saw in the, over the last couple few years in the markets uh, uh, that were running up here in the U.S. We had the same thing happen uh, at the dot-com bubble with a lot of the same justifications about how the internet was going to change the world, blah, 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 which it did, but that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, profits. And we had a, I mean, it was really kind of the same. I'm not going to go through it. You can read the history of it. It was very frothy. I do, I had to tell the story about the stocks that I was shorting. The shorts were so obvious. I mean, the valuations on like websites, I remember one famous one, pets.com. I like to talk about this. We didn't have like Twitter then or, you know, Reddit or Discord or any of these things. What we basically had was Yahoo message boards on the, on the finance page. So you could go to the stock chart and then put messages and people would get on there and give their opinions. And you'd be like, you know, this stock is being valued on how many eyeballs are looking at it. That was the valuation metric. If you have so many eyeballs, because the, the, the thought was, okay, well, all these people are coming to these e-commerce sites for pet supplies, for example, and that's going to eventually translate. Somehow the connection was made logically in people's minds that that was going to lead to, you know, all the sales and profits, you know, it didn't really happen. And so you would suggest these things that this was crazy, these valuations, they're being assigned to the eyeballs, watching, the, looking at the website, and, you know, you would get death threats and people would, you know, it's the same thing you see nowadays. And like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature doesn't change. So you see the dot-com run up, ran it up 5,000%. You had this blow-off peak, and then you had, well, a 90, not 95, whatever it was, 90 95, 98%. So most, a lot of these companies just went out of business. And you see the same thing happening now. Today's glamour stocks, you're seeing the same thing because this is how bubbles always end. I'm not opposed to playing bubbles. You just have to know to get off the, the train because what happens is you get so mat, you get so uh, infatuated with the, you just get caught up in the, in the, in the, um, in the Mardi Gras atmosphere. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just psychologically, you start making justifications of why these valuations are not a big deal, how transformative these industries are going to be, all kinds of things. You seek out confirmation bias or information sources that you know back up your claim. And in the meantime, you can go back. It's not just the dot-com, but every other bubble before it ends the same way. And so this one has popped. And so we still have, you still see people justifying why the previous top performers in the previous bubble can come back. That's not how it works. Uh, these things are going to get destroyed. They will revalue lower. Many companies will go out of business and disappear. If you, you know, if you're running a business at some point, you can't just keep issuing stock or borrowing money. You have to actually have revenue that translates into earnings and cash flow. You can't just run losses forever with the idea, well, we have a total addressable market and we'll get there eventually and use the excuse, this is how Amazon grew and we're the same way. Most companies are not in the Amazon model, okay? Um, they don't have the ability to do that. So that 
business model, whatever you want to call it, uh, is is over. And this is what you see. So uh, I'll keep that in mind if you're playing around with these things and you think, well, you know, we've, we, we're pulled back enough, uh, corrections enough. I'm going to go long on a lot of these previous stocks that participated in the previous uh, bull market or, or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, glamour stocks, nifty 50 in the 70s, whatever you want to say it. International stocks in the early 90s, it's the same theme. So just beware of that. And follow Jesse Felder because this is the kind of good stuff you're going to get from him. I found this humorous to a certain extent. Why? Because I used to work at Duke Energy and I built a lot of these plants that are now being impaired. Um, I don't know the full scope of this. It just says that Duke's going to take a tax impairment on its renewable unit. It says Duke takes $1.3 billion charge on a renewable unit. It's selling. Duke Energy Corp. will take $1.3 billion impairment loss on the sale of its commercial renewable business, which it now expects to close later this year. So I, I, I'm not working for them for many years. I don't know what's going on there. I don't talk to people, but I do know they had this big push into it. And I had to listen to all the non... I was sitting there listening to this nonsense. All the executives would get up there and renewables, we're going to transform the company, yada, yada, yada. It was all about tax incentives. It was all about capturing... Uh, the tax credits. And what happened was I remember going to a dinner in Austin with my manager and some people from the, um, I don't know, accounting, tax equity folks, development people. And my manager, he was a good guy, but he he had the hook in all the way down deep in his throat. He was all in on renewables. He's an ex-fossil fuel guy like me. And, uh, you know, he had the hook in all the way. And they were like, we were talking about all of this. We we're talking about the deals that we were working on. They were getting ready to build and me being in operations and then transferring to project management. Um, so I was just listening. I'm not, you know, I'm low man on the totem pole. I'm listening to these guys. And so my manager is like, well, you know, we have to operate. And there's like, we're not going to make these investments in, you know, we're going to basically when the tax incentive runs out, we're selling this stuff. And he was like, shocked well why would we do that well because we've lost the majority of the reason why we're building these and then once we lose that then you know the returns are not sufficient enough for justify so they'll sell them it's kind of like you know uh and he was shocked he couldn't understand it. he couldn't get his head wrapped around it you know because he was more of a power plant guy like me he wasn't really a finance guy he was smart enough to understand but he he's like well what about you know we have this and everybody's just looking at him like he was crazy this is about dollars dude this has nothing to do with changing the world yeah that's what the executives say to the media but i'm just like warren buffett said i i tell this story to everybody you know about what warren buffett said they have a berkshire hathaway has a large business in mid-america energy they've built i don't even know how many megawatts or gigawatts of wind power and one of the shareholders at one of the Berkshire meetings asked Warren Buffett, well, why do we build these things? He said, we build them because of the tax credits. If it wasn't for the tax incentives, we wouldn't build them. That's what he said. I didn't say that. There's nothing to read into it. That's why people build these things. You're not going to build these things without the incentives because they don't work without them. And now, you know, Duke that was going to change the world and, you know, do all this wonderful stuff. And I was there. That's what they were talking. That's when Lynn Good first came on when I had just was getting ready to leave. 
she was spouting all this stuff, you know? So again, in the Titanic struggle between politics and physics, physics always wins. Again, I don't know the particulars. I'm not going to dive into it. I just thought this was interesting from the perspective of what we talk about renewables and the fact that, uh, you know, maybe they didn't run the assets correctly. I don't know. I haven't been there in many, many years, but I just found this uh, slightly amusing. Let's put it that way. So uh, World Dutch Shell's board of directors is being sued over the climate strategy. They're being sued personally now. So uh, this was an article. I'll try to put links to most of these articles if I was able to get the link. Sometimes I just get, I sign up for these email uh, distributions and I just get these via an email with no link to the article. But anyways, where I have an article link, I'll, as usual, uh, link to it so that you can review the information for yourself and make sure that I'm not putting a bias on it. So basically it's a environmental law firm, Client Earth. So there you go. Would, how would you like to work in that office? In its capacity as a shareholder, filed the lawsuit against the British oil majors board at the High Court of England and Wales on Thursday. The, it, the lawsuit alleges 11 members of Shell's board are mismanaging climate risk, breaching company law by failing to implement an energy transition strategy that aligns with the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement. Shell's directors are being personally sued for allegedly failing to adequately manage the risks associated with the climate emergency in a first-of-its-kind lawsuit that could have widespread implications for how other companies plan to cut emissions. And here's a quote from the senior lawyer at Client Earth. Shell may be making record profits now due to the turmoil of the global energy market, but the writing is on the wall for fossil fuels long term. I guess he is one of these people that thinks fossil fuels is going away. It's not going away. Uh, so we'll have to watch how this uh, lawsuit performs. Why? Because if the people are sued individually, then there will be hesitancy for other people to serve on the board. Um, there will be, you know, this will change people's view in the West. I, why would I want to serve on a board of a fossil fuel company and risk being personally sued by nut job environmentalist lawyers. Um, if you read the article, they talk about how these people became a shareholder and they're representing other shareholders. If you don't like the policies of Shell, vote your shares, sell them, just sell them. What the, These are oil and gas companies, okay? Why should they transform themselves into uh, renewable companies that in the end, the returns are not sufficient to justify the existence? You just see Duke selling their their business. They were one of the biggest proponents of this nonsense for the last 10 or 15 years. So, again, this is another attempt to use lawfare. Um, most people, if you sat them down and said, in order to meet these climate goals that policymakers are putting forth and that environmental um activists are putting forth means that your wealth has to go down by this much and this many people have to die because that's really what it means you cannot support the current population of the earth without fossil fuels just from an agricultural perspective it's that simple and again um 
you can read like a, one of the columnists I read, Manhattan conservative, is an ex-lawyer in New York City. He writes about this all the time, all the nut job policies in New York City that they've been implementing in New York State. Um, they're just not going to come to fruition. So fossil fuel use will not go down even if Shell goes away. You'll just If you just stranded all of Shell's and all of Total's and all of Eni's, these are the big, you know, uh, Repsol, the big European international uh, fossil, you know, oil and gas companies. If you just put them out of business tomorrow by mandating it, you still have demand for oil products in Europe. You're just going to have to import it. So the problem is, is that we are allowing a small minority of environmental activists and policymakers that are either being disingenuous or just stupid make policy and play with a machine that they don't understand okay it's like that mickey mouse cartoon about the you know wizard you know he gets wizard's apprentice or whatever magician's apprentice when he he gets a hold of the stuff and the whole thing goes off the rails or lucy's pie machine you know the pie factory i mean that's what this turn you don't let these people be in charge because they are fanatics and fanatic fanaticism is not a good way to run energy policy but again these things will not go through we will not go away from using fossil fuels we will not have an energy transition 2030 2050 goals will not be met and it's just going to be how much pain is required for people in the west to endure before they finally wake up and take political action that's what will happen so this, of course, as we are speculators, will create tremendous amounts of volatility and opportunity for us to play these things, okay? Because we don't have a rational energy policy, and all this stuff is politicized, and we have all this lawfare going on. So um, these folks may be, in their mind, feel like this Paul Benson, maybe he thinks he's doing the right thing. I don't know. I don't know this person, but you know, I'd like to have a conversation. I mean, but I don't respect these people. They're anti-human. They hate human beings. Okay. And again, there's no solution. There's only trade-offs. Um, in order to have the standard of living that we have in the West, it requires a certain amount of energy inputs. And if you can't tell me where the energy inputs are going to come to replace the ones you want to remove, then we can't have a conversation. And you can't tell me wind and solar because I'm an expert on wind and solar. I build them and I operate them. And they cannot run a modern industrial economy. They are intermittent power sources. I've said this till I'm out of breath. And until they can tell me how they're going to do that, you can't just say batteries because that's a math problem. Where do you get the materials? You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth, Mr. Benson. You can't say we're going to run the world, the U.S. or Europe on renewables and we're going to have all this storage when the current technology requires mining that's insufficient to do that. So in the real world, uh, jet fuel demand to increase this year as air travel recovers. Um, this is what we were talking about. A lot of this is going to come from China, but uh, here's what the article says. Jet fuel is set to be the biggest driver of oil demand growth this year, according to the International Energy Agency. Consumption of the fuel is seen rising by 850,000 barrels a day in 2023, accounting for about 45% of growth this year. China plays a big part in the boom, but it's only not the only market responsible 
While the nation's post-COVID reopening on January 8th prompted a doubling of jet fuel use within a week, data analytics company Kairos also noted strong demand in Japan, South Korea, and Australia. Yeah, I mean, I track some airport operators, companies that operate airports, and they're not. We're not even back, even in most places, to post-pandemic levels of air travel. So we're inching up towards them in countries that already opened up. And now with China coming back, you just saw what it said here. It's uh, um, jet fuel demand doubled within a week, and I think the last time I looked at it, um. After the New Year's or the Chinese New Year holidays and the travel, people traveling back from their relatives, it's kind of leveling off at about 12,500 flights a day. The pre-pandemic run rate was like closer to 15,000 flights a day. So I expect over time it's going to inch up to that, but we've already seen the, a big push in demand now as China's reopening. I see no evidence. I don't know what's going on in China. I know people have different opinions that all these people are dying. I have no idea. China's not going to reverse the policy as far as I can tell at this point. They're going to continue on. And most people in China have decided and are on board that they have to reopen and they're going to reopen. I haven't seen, I've seen little articles here and there, as I've said before, about people, you know, saying that, you know, it's out of control and all these, you know, it very well could be, but they're not going to report that and they're not going to reverse the policy. I don't see it at this point. So, um, anticipate more demand. Uh, and it's not just going to be jet fuel, right? So the entire economy uh, is based on inputs, fuel inputs. So as economic activity picks up, and don't forget the fact that I've mentioned before that I don't really hear a lot of people talking about. Um, I like listening to this guy uh, on Twitter, Cross Border Capital, and he was interviewed this week on, the, on my website. I put a link to the interview, the guy that runs Cross Border Capital. His name's, uh, I forget his name now, but he kind of went into his theories on liquidity and capital flows and how they affect markets. And he was talking specifically, I mean, he's very wonkish. You got to kind of like pay attention. You're not going to grasp everything on the first go through. Um, I mean, the host that was interviewing was totally overwhelmed. She didn't really get everything. But um, what I found was uh, particularly interesting was the comments around China and the liquidity that they've pumped into their market to really, you know, it's kind of like he kind of used the term like, you know, when you watch the movie Frankenstein and they pump all that electricity from the lightning into the Frankenstein monster to awaken them. That's kind of the analogy used. I think it's uh, appropriate. You know, I was listening to some other analysts and depending on who you want to listen to, there's anywhere from one and a half to three or four trillion dollars I don't of equivalent savings and pent up, uh, you know, that the Chinese consumers have. You couple that with close to three or four hundred billion dollars in equivalent liquidity injections by the People's Bank of China. Uh, I think, you know, this is going to be a major impetus into um what happens in China this year. The other thing that he talks about, and if you follow him on Twitter, they put a lot of great charts up. I'm trying to get more and more understanding around this whole liquidity flows. Obviously, uh, my interest in this is uh, is from um, the quotes I use from Stan Druckenmiller about liquidity being the primary driver of you know equity markets or asset prices so it pays attention to kind of try to understand this and what this other guy what this guy argued at cross-border capital was arguing 
making the argument for was we've already bottomed the tightening worldwide tightening cycle has bottomed and we're already turning upwards with the beginning of the Chinese liquefying and Japan never stopped obviously. And so we should see, you know, he, this guy said he tracks 90 central banks and the um, tightening cycle has already peaked and we're going to move to the next reliquification cycle. One of the things he said is, you know, uh, like, what you see what's happened recently in commodity prices and Bitcoin prices, these are manifestations of increased liquidity. Uh, Bitcoin itself, his argument was, is totally a, a liquidity-driven asset. So as liquidity increases, you should see the price of Bitcoin go up. And also, you know, an asset like gold. Remains to be seen. We'll see. Uh, I don't like fully endorse any analyst's uh, view 100%, but uh, it's worth paying attention to, I think, and uh, taking into consideration because it's totally contrary to what a lot of folks are saying or expecting uh, in the U.S. and in Europe this year and into 2024. So I put this up here. People might find this stuff boring, but let me tie this together. So Spain's PM, uh, Prime Minister, says the EU should reindustrialize. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez on Monday urged the European Union to reindustrialize to end its reliance on energy, microchips, and food from outside the bloc and to learn the lessons of shortages provoked by the pandemic and war in Ukraine. Well, that makes sense. I, I don't disagree with that. Shortages triggered by dependence on countries outside the EU highlighted, quote, a serious threat to the competitiveness of our companies or to the security and welfare of our fellow citizens, unquote. Okay. Now, here's where it goes off the rails. The solution he added was to, quote, reindustrialize Europe and recover jobs and strategic capabilities that we should never have lost. The focus would not be on traditional heavy manufacturing, but digitalization or ecological transition. See, this is the problem. It's very easy to solve the problems in Europe, the economic problems, the stagnation, the deindustrialization. But the political will is, and uh, the view of the people there is not conducive to doing that. Deregulate, solve your issue with Russia, turn the gas back on, um, deal with uh you know you have to make certain policy prescriptions we know throughout history as we've seen countries like singapore you know the 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 tiger countries in um uh southeast asia in the 90s uh, a country like the republic of georgia there are certain policy prescriptions hong kong okay there are certain things that you do if you want your uh economy to grow okay and to produce and the policy prescriptions that are in place in Europe are not conducive to that. That's just how it is. The people there don't want that, okay? Um, that They don't vote for that. They don't want to be subject to the market. They want to be protected from the market. It's very simple. You're either believe in free markets or you're a statist, okay? So we have this quasi-system that you, either, you do not get, you know, and yet the free market gets blamed for not producing when this guy says the right things at the beginning and then the policy focus is wrong, okay? Um, what you should do is get government out of everything and they should create an environment that's conducive to entrepreneurial activity 
and uh, low regulation and low state interference in sticking their hand in everything. But that's not how it is. Very heavily unionized there. Um, you have old money that's there that does not want to be challenged, does not want to compete, okay? This is in every country. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I found this out dealing with some Spanish companies that I've dealt with over the last several years. Yes, they might be publicly traded, but they're completely, if you look at the history of the companies, they're started by old money, family money, and yes, they take the company public as a way to get a valuation on it, but they still hold good chunks of it, okay? And they are in the managements. They have, they're on the board still. Uh, you see the same thing in France. There's a lot of old money um, type companies and people, you know, wealthy people and the workers don't want competition. They don't want to compete. So there's uh, state intervention, state protectionism. And then these, you know, a guy like this gets up and says, you know, why, why is he talking about solar panels? Uh, he uses the example. He noted that 1% of solar panels were made in the EU or 20% of internet storage used by the block. Because the reason why you don't produce solar panels in Europe is because it's very, very environmentally damaging. So it's very costly to put the environmental protections in place to manufacture. Plus, labor is very expensive. That's why they manufacture them in the Western province. You know, there's polysilicon in the Western province of China run by coal plants. You've seen the satellite images of the coal mine with the huge coal plant and the polysilicon plant right next to it. Out of sight, out of mind, right? That's why, Mr. Sanchez, because if you if you put all these costs into the price of a solar panel in the U.S. or or the EU that you would have to do for all of the protections, which I'm not saying you shouldn't have, you should have, you shouldn't pollute the environment, the solar panels would not be competitive and the solar plants would not be competitive. I mean, these people lack basic economic, they don't understand anything they're talking about most of the time. They just, it's just all platitudes. We need to reindustrialize. Well, the first thing you should do is break away from the US and have peace with Russia and get Nord Stream 1 and 2 up and running because that's where all the cheap gas was coming from for the block. How are you going to have an industrial revolution if your fuel inputs are higher than all your competitors like the US? So I'm not going to argue with these people um, you can have your own views. People listening to this can debate this with me. Proof's in the pudding. They're not going to manufacture solar panels or internet storage servers in Europe because they're uncompetitive. That's why. No matter how, no matter how you try to reindustrialize, same thing in the U.S. All of this billions of dollars in tax incentives and money that's going to be spent on the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be thrown away because that's not how you run an economy. There's two ways to interact in the world. Um, voluntarily, where a buyer and a seller have a voluntary transaction with no outside interference from a third party, or by the government coercing people to do things because they know better. What do you think is most efficient? There's a reason why I brought this up, and I talked about the energy inputs. We're going to get into something controversial now that some people aren't going to like. But feel free to tell me in the comments. So you will recall that a while back that we had a um, somebody blew up 
the Nord Stream pipelines that brought gas from, well, three out of the four lines, the way I understand it, that brought gas from Russia to uh, Europe, primarily Germany, uh, with long-term contracts that was price competitive, fairly cheap. As a matter of fact, um, since then, we know about the whole, you know, since the war started uh, with Russia invading Ukraine, all the sanctions packages, and I'm not going to get into whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can have your own view on that. The fact remains that if you remove that cheap energy, the large amount of cheap energy, the energy costs in Europe have went up. Even with the recent declines, they're still higher than they are in most other places, okay? And so when you're manufacturing, when you have an economy that requires energy inputs and the ener that cost goes up, it affects the whole operation because this is, should be elementary for folks. And so what we had this week was an article written by an investigative journalist, guy's 85 years old, Seymour Hirsch. This guy's not a blogger. He's not a conspiracy theorist. This guy is a multi-decade investigative journalist that has broken many, many stories, okay? One of the major ones was the reporting he did back in, I think it was the 60s, late 60s, um, you can look him up on Wikipedia or whatever. He broke a, a lot of stories. Was the CIA spying on anti-war activists in the U.S., which precipitated a bunch of congressional hearings, yada, yada, yada. And so he came out this week and he had an article where he says that uh, he has he had information about the U.S. and a couple of its allies, most notably Norway, were responsible for destroying the Nord Stream pipelines. And I'll put a link to the article. It's on Substack. You can read it. I mean, hardly anybody in the press is talking about it. They're not talking about it in Europe. As far as I know, it's not all over. It's just, this should be front page news. And if you read the article, in my view, I, I the evidence pointed to the United States all along because Mr. Biden said, even before the war started, that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline would not come online. Okay. Victoria Newland said the same thing. She was squirming in her seat. She was so hot and bothered at her recent congressional testimony that she wanted to say, she's like Jack Nicholson in, in uh, you know, that movie about the Marine Corps with Tom Cruise. She just wanted to say that the U.S. blew up. She couldn't, she almost couldn't stop, stop herself. She almost said it. Okay. A Few Good Men was the name of the movie. If you watch that uh, congressional testimony, or at least the clips, okay. And so we blew up Germ we blew up an Allies pipeline. Now people say, well, it's a Russian pipeline. No, 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 no. Gazprom owned half of it. The Germans, uh, various German companies, own the other half. Plus, it was supplying cheap gas to Germany and to other places in Europe. Okay. And so here's a few blurbs from the uh, article. You can read it yourself. You can come to any conclusion you'd like. I have no doubt in my mind that the United States blew it up. President Biden said he was going to, it was never going to come online. Victoria Newland said it's a hunk of junk on the sea. She seemed to, that's what she said. Okay. And this goes back, uh, let me, let me go through the blurbs and I'll just give you a quick commentary of why this is important and actionable. The New York Times called it, a, quote, a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. Asked for comment, a White House spokesperson said in an email, quote, 
This is false and complete fiction, unquote. She's talking about Mr. Hirsch's article. Tammy Thorpe, a spokesman for the CIA, similarly wrote, quote, this claim is completely false, completely and utterly false, unquote. So I'll take another blurb from the uh, thing. The, 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 what you need to understand from this article, they were plotting to do this before the war even started. They were plotting to do this before the war even started. They were plotting to do this before the war even started. Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back and forth debate inside Washington's National Security Committee about how to best achieve that goal. For much of the time, the issue was not whether to do the mission, but how to get it done with no covert clue as to who was responsible. <clears throat> Again, this goes back to the great game. This goes back to the Asian, Eurasian uh, island. Okay. Talked about this before. How is this actionable? If it is true, which I think it is probably true, that the United States blew up with, you know, conspiring with Norway, and it's possible now even some people inside the German government, because I don't think Olaf Schultz had a clue about this personally. He's so out to lunch. He's not even talking to Annalita Baerbach now as foreign minister because she went off the reservation about with these tanks. He wasn't even included. They don't even talk to each other. So I have no doubt that there may be elements inside the German government that were involved in this too, Not and Schultz was out to lunch. They blew the thing up because the policy of NATO and the United States, the Anglo-American empire hegemon is with respect to Europe and respect to its policy towards Russia is very simple. We've stated it before. Keep Russia out of Europe. Keep the U.S. in Europe and keep Germany down. Why? The fear is that you would have... I've said this before, German industrial know-how, engineering. I mean, people just don't understand the colossus, industrial colossus Germany is. You couple that, and they were moving towards this, okay, more and more over time, Germany and Russia, okay? This is, they've constantly, the, the Anglo-American hegemon has, this is one of their worst fears, is to have Russian natural resources, cheap, ubiquitous, easily obtained resources, primarily energy, coupled with German engineering and manufacturing clout. And then, you know, what do you need the U.S. for then? You know, after the pipeline was blown up, I think it was Anthony Blinken said that this represents a tremendous opportunity for the U.S. Yeah, because now people are going to move manufacturing here because the natural gas is cheaper and we're going to sell them our LNG at a higher price. Yeah, that, that, that's why it's beneficial. Plus, we keep them separated. We keep that Eurasian, you know, conglomeration, that island of that common market from Lisbon to Vladivostok. We just put a wedge in that, okay? And somehow that's going to, you know, we can't allow, as you read Zygmunt Brzezinski's book about the great game, we cannot allow an emergence of a power on the Eurasian island that can compete or surpass the United States. That's what this is all about. And so what the United States has done is went completely pirate ship. It's completely rogue. If this is true, which it probably is, there should be investigate there should be congressional investigations. There should be an impeachment. And I want to ask Germans that are listening to me, what do you think about this? This is how 
gelded your government is. You're one of your primary allies, your members of NATO, one of your primary allies, the United States, conspiring with other European countries to blow up your primary energy source from Russia. Now, you could say that the sanctions are justified. You can say that, you know, politically, all this stuff's justified. But now we've blown up these pipelines. And now what's Germany supposed to do? How do you feel about that? Do you like that imposed on you by the United States? What now there can't even be a deal. The reason why is because there still was an opportunity to get a deal. Okay, guys, let's have a let's get a deal down in Ukraine and let's turn the gas back on. Now you can't even turn it back on. Now evidently these things can be repaired at some point, but I don't know. I'm not I don't know enough about the damage. I don't know enough about the metallurgy. I, I'm not an expert on it. The point being, what why am I talking about this? Why is this actionable? Because one of my main thesis going forward is the decline of the American empire and they're drowning. And when you see somebody drowning, unless you're a trained rescuer, you should stay away from them because a drowning person is panicking. They will pull you down with them. And that's what we're seeing. Okay. We're running around the world. This is rogue nation stuff, guys. Okay. You don't go around blowing up unannounced your, your allies, major energy source that's powering your industrial juggernaut and, you know, pretend you didn't do it. But then, you know, basically tell everybody that you did it without telling them. And then how do Germans feel about this? What is your government going to do about this? Well, evidently not. I guess send more tanks to, to Russia or to Ukraine. And so the rest of the world's looking at this. You know, we have this titanic struggle going along as the Anglo-American empire is in decline. And when empires in decline and other empires are, or other states are emerging to, to, to challenge for that role, for that hegemon, for that place in the, you know, as we've seen throughout history, okay, this can get messy. It's one thing if, you know, when the um, Spanish lost their empire over time, um, okay, well, just transition to other European countries, but there weren't nuclear weapons available, okay? So we're in a state where we have people that are so rogue that they went and destroyed uh, these energy sources, this energy pipeline to an ally without telling them, did it in secret, covert, if you will. What else will they do? I mean, I've told you before that there's people in policymaking places in D.C. that have written papers about how it's possible to win a nuclear war. And everybody's just sitting here going, well, let's get ready for the Super Bowl. Super Bowl's tomorrow. This isn't this isn't front page news. A few people have mentioned it. There should be congressional. Biden should be impeached. Those people that were involved in plotting this should be put in jail. What who is running the foreign policy of this country? What is the goal of the foreign policy to alienate every damn country in the world? If you're sitting there as Pakistan or countries in Africa or India, you're looking at this going, these people have lost their ever-loving mind, talking about the U.S. And so if the overtures come from China and Russia and they say, well, we have to create this multipolar world because we have this rogue state, we have this evil empire, that's, that's what gets trained. So you start thinking to yourself, hmm, what should I do? If you're Saudi Arabia and you had a 50-year relationship with the United States security relationship, why do you think they're moving away from the U.S.? 
The U.S. cannot be trusted. The U.S. does the international rules-based order that everybody talks about. I agree with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. What is it? Where is it written down? Who agreed? Who made these rules and who agreed to them? Though the international rules-based order is whatever the United States, the Anglo-American Empire, decides it is, and what and they it decides what's it's it's in its best interest. And so this is going to have repercussions. You're not going to recover from this immediately. Every all 180 countries on the earth are watching this. You know. The Anglo-American hegemon only represents about 15% of the world's population. There's the 85% of the rest of the world that's emerging markets and frontier markets that are growing. And so who are they going to be more apt to seek alliances with, seek trade with, uh, try to get protection from? The United States that's in decline, that's running around like a crazy person, doing all these wild things, threatening everybody that doesn't do what they want, or you know, Russia and China. I'm not saying that a multipolar world where Russia and China and Iran and these places places like that that are in an alliance makes for a better world. I have no idea, okay? But it certainly can see that people are going to be more drawn to that stability, order, a commitment to have win-win outcomes than just having the United States run around and just blow up your infrastructure because it decides that's what it wants to do. And so I think that's going to have repercussions over the years. I mean, you have to get an entire new government in the United States that needs to come in, clean out the FBI, clean out the CIA, clean out the State Department of all these neocons and wackos. But what's the chance of that happening? Not high. Not high. Trump tried it, and he didn't get anywhere, and you see what they've done to him. You think DeSantis is going to come in there and fire everybody in the... The FBI needs to be completely shut down. They have bureaus of criminal criminal apprehension and investigation in each state. What do you need? A fe Federal Bureau of Investigation, you saw the hearings this week, had people working at these social media companies conspiring against the American people. So I'm going to get off the rant. You can read this article. You can come to your own conclusion. My conclusion is that it's an we're an empire in decline, the U.S., and it's at, well... Do you even call them allies now? This is why I say countries don't have allies. They have interests. And it was in our interest to make sure that Germany and Russia didn't reconcile. So we blew up the pipeline. I mean, I didn't need this article to tell me that. I knew that all along. I mean, you never have 100% certainty, but who else did it? Russia blew up the, that pipeline? Come on. And so, of course, they're going to attack Mr. Hirsch. He's not a random blogger or crackpot. He's broken many, many stories over his four-decade career, five-decade career that have been uh, just as shattering, okay, and have not been positive for the United States government. I mean, if you're going to sit here and support the U.S. government with all that you know in its history now, they're dragging us to, you know, potential Armageddon here, okay? This needs to stop. All right, that's my rant. You can hit me up in the in the uh, show notes. I would really like to hear from German people. If there's Germans that listen to this, how do you feel about this? Do you think that the United States blew up the pipeline? Do you Are you fine with that? Um, that the United States just, I mean, what's next? So uh, I'd really, you know, how gelded is Olaf Schultz? I mean, with Annalena Baerbach, they don't even, like I said, they don't even talk anymore. She's out there making foreign policy without conferring with the chancellor, evidently. I'd like to know if that's true. Is that what's being reported in Germany? Is that what's going on? 
So more positive nuclear news. I mean, they were kind of heading towards, as we've been reporting on Japan, extending the working life of its reactors. Um, you can go to this. Uh, I'll put a link to this. I mean, you can translate the article. It doesn't say much more than this. Basically, Japan formally adopts policy to operate nuclear reactors beyond 60 years. Cabinet approved pro-nuclear plan, including building next-gen reactors. Government pivoted on nuclear amid effort to curb dependence on overseas fuel and hit green goals. I mean, if you go back and look to what I was saying from the start of this video series, like five years ago, this channel, I always always said that Japan would end up here because it has no choice. It's almost 100%, well, pretty much 100% dependent on imports for fuel. And so with global LNG and short supply and high cost, with coal not necessarily being the best alternative, the country simply doesn't have the ability to build all these renewables. Yes, they build renewables there, but if you've been to Japan or lived in Japan, I lived in Japan for three years, you will understand that it's a very um, mountainous country, doesn't have a lot of flat open space. They don't have the ability to just put solar panels and wind farms all over the place, plus the wind resource isn't that good. And so they never, they were always going to end up here. It just takes time, right? It just takes time for the zeitgeist and the sediment to shift. And the Japanese being more of a um, homogenous country with kind of a society that pulls the wagon in the same directions and being a little bit more pragmatic than the chaos we see in the Western democracies, I always knew they were going to end up here. And here's a poll that was taken by the Nikkei. Um, this shows the uh, support for nuclear power. It says majority of Japan supports nuclear restarts for the first time in a decade. You can see, and why is that? Oh, even over time, this was, opposition was going down. You know, time heals all wounds. And so we have, you know, a clear majority of people now because, you know, it's reality again. When physics meets politics, physics wins inevitably. And the same thing will happen eventually in Europe and the United States. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're, we are so morally bankrupt and intellectually corrupted by this insane wokeness that we've adopted that we're not going to change. We're just going to go step off into the abyss and fall. Very possible. I have more... Um, I have more optimism than that longer term it just takes time and it takes pain and uh you know that's what we'll see in europe and the u.s because we don't have a cogent well thought out rational energy policy that puts the onus on energy security and state stability so again i've always said that you should curate a Twitter account that you can follow very smart people. This is where I get a lot of my information. Um, I interact with uh, quite a few smart people. There's a lot of smaller accounts that most people don't know about, and you can follow these folks. And it's just unbelievable the amount of top-level information that's just free, freely given by folks. This is one of the accounts I like. It's a, I can't pronounce this gentleman's last name, but it's at, at energy underscore tidbits. Uh, he's the chief market strategist at SA, SAF groups. What I like about it is if you go to the website, you can sign up for this uh, email that they put out every week. It's called energy tidbits. 
you get it like uh, late Saturday, early Sunday morning. I can't remember. Oh, on the weekend. It basically summarizes. It's typically 30 pages PDF about all this energy news um, and stuff that you're not going to – it's all condensed in there. Now, you're not going to get stock picks or anything, but like you're going to get all of this information, all this news that's collated, that's being curated uh, for you and uh, gives you a lot of – lot to uh, think about more than you're going to get if you just you know peruse Bloomberg or they're taking in all these inputs plus you know uh, looking at uh, you know what traders I mean it's really good I really suggest that you follow this Twitter account and you sign up for the energy tidbits uh, email and you'll get that every week top-notch account and th they could charge thousands of dollars for that energy tidbits uh, um make it into a newsletter and send it out every week and people would pay for it, but they don't do that. And this guy only has 7,200 followers. Nobody knows about it and they give the stuff away for free. So I would follow it. Um, this is something that I've talked about before. Uh, I just put this title on the slide, things that make you go, hmm. And so you have name changes of companies changing their names. I don't know who any of these companies are. I have no clue. But what I find interesting is, is that what I've said before, when you can tell when a market is getting near a top, another indicator is that all the moose pasture companies will start changing their focus. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, all these companies like critical metals right now, criti critical battery metals are the big new thing, right? Everybody wants to get into critical battery metals. And so you have all these companies changing their name or lithium, you know, lithium, nickel, cobalt, these things. And so you have these companies changing their names, right? Copper Ridge Exploration is now Norris Lithium. Braveheart Resources is now Canadian Critical Minerals. Madi Minerals is now Pegmatite One Lithium and Gold. I mean, I don't even know who these companies are. I don't know what they were doing before they got into this. Maybe they were you know, what moose pasture they have, if they have legitimate properties, maybe somebody in the comments knows, but this is typically what you see. GME resources is now Alliance Nickel because what you want is, right, if something's hot, you want to have the focus brought to your company, right? So that you can do an offering, say, hey, we're, you know, we have this project, we're focused on critical minerals. Here's the total addressable market for batteries between here and 2035. You can see the combined, uh, Annual growth rate is, uh, you know, 35 or 40% a year, blah, blah, blah. And here's this moose pasture that we were drilling for gold on, but, you know, we think we have some lithium there. This is how it's done. And then you can keep the game going because the game is to keep uh, retail investors coming or, you know, get keep the money flow going. So, again, I don't want to speak negatively about any of these companies because I don't know them, but this is typical of what you will see. This is what happened. Somebody asked me to what happened during the last uranium bull market. This is what happens. I mean, when the uranium bull market started, the last one, there was only two or three publicly traded uranium companies. At the end, there were several hundred. Were there several hundred competent uranium mining teams available staffing these companies? Were there really several hundred or a couple hundred, whatever it was, legitimate uranium projects? No. People just changed their name. It's not just in mining. They do the same thing in other industries. And these things are typically should make your spidey senses go off about, well, how far has lithium really went? You know, I think it's starting to 
I've already declared in my mind that we are at peak ESG. We're never going to meet these goals that they're talking about because the mining, the resources don't exist. The ability to mine the amount of resources that are needed to do it with the current technology and methodology they're talking about simply doesn't exist. It will not happen. And so maybe we're getting near the top of this. Maybe it plays out. Um, you know, maybe they pull a rabbit out of their hat and they do it. I don't know. But these kind of, this is, I, I just thought this was interesting to bring to your attention because this will apply to when we see near the top of any market, you will see this happen. You will see all these companies change their names, junior mining, because what do they do in Vancouver? I told you this before, junior mining resource companies, okay? This is not for, uh, you know, this is not for people that ha don't have a strong stomach. They're there to take your money. They're legitimate companies, but not that many. Most of them are lifestyle companies, and they just, this is what they do. And when the ducks quack, ducks being retail investors, quack, 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 lithium, quack, 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 critical me battery metals, quack, quack, quack. They have a saying in Vancouver, when the ducks quack, feed them. And that's what they do. They create companies, they change the names, they issue shares, they come out with stories. Again, if you're going to play in this market, go to one of these resource um, conventions where they have a big hall and they'll have several hundred, couple hundred, several hundred tables and ex ex exhibits for these junior resource companies. And if you go to, go to just pick 10 randomly and go there and say you're interested and they'll start talking to you and tell you about how wonderful their project is and how it's going to do whatever it's going to do. When we know for a fact that very, very few companies actually ever go from development to an actual mine. That's why you have to know who you're dealing with. Have they done it before? There's a whole bunch of stuff we've talked about this before. So I don't want to belabor this. I just wanted to bring this tidbit to your information, uh, to your um, attention. So again, a compounding quality, another Twitter account you should find outstanding information every day. Every single day, this guy's putting out good information. His website, his Substack, has thousands of pages of PDFs of famous investors' writings, all free. But I like he puts up these memes too. So I've said this: if you're going to be an investor long term, and you should try to get you know this, a lot of things that I talk about of why people aren't successful financially in investing comes down to one thing they try to get rich quick i did the same thing when i was younger i was jumping around from different schemes and scams and penny stocks and options it doesn't work the way that you get wealthy is you get wealthy slow over time you don't yeah some people get lucky i get it okay but the average person that's not how you do it and so you have to have a mindset change and this i thought was very illustrative you know one of the things you always have to do is pay yourself. You got to build a grub stake. You know, Charlie Munger says that he talks about a number he had to get to. Now, it's, of course, it's in, adjusted for inflation, but bear with me. He said he talks about getting that first hundred grand put together. He's talking about a grub stake. Okay. Now, obviously, I don't. I have to find out when he made that statement and adjusted for inflation. But just bear with me. You, the point is, you got to get that grub stake. And what does he say? You got to do whatever you got to do. If you got to live on beans. And, you know, in your mom's basement, you got to get it. Whatever you got to do, you got to get that grub stake. Because once you get that hundred grand or whatever it is now, a couple few hundred grand, 
then you, th that's the hard part. Then it becomes progressively easier after that. And that is true. That is true. I can vouch for that. You've got to struggle. You've got to get it. You've got to put that grub stake together. And then, but this is what, you know, a lot of folks do. You know, you say a poor person, um, when they get income, the first thing they do is they take care of their wants and then their expenses. There's no investing or saving going on. Um, and people say, well, John, you don't understand. People are poor. They don't have the ability to do that. Yeah, they do. I mean, I, I've went through many people's budgets when people used to ask me and, you know, they're sitting there drinking a Starbucks and with a, a iPhone in their hand. And they say, I just can't seem to get this, John. Whoa, I'm in debt. How do I, I mean, come on, man, look at the, be some, have some self-introspection. There's been many, many, several stories that I've pointed out of a guy that was a janitor or some person that was a food service worker or something and they grubbed away and you know the guy lived till he was like 85 this janitor and nobody really paid attention to him and when he died he had a portfolio of several million dollars and he made all these donations to the local library and to the hospital it can be done it's consistent even if it's 10 bucks a week even if it's 10 bucks a month to start you got to do it okay you got to do it because the time is going by, you're wasting that time and compounding requires time. Okay. And what happens is, is this is how, and these are generalizations. I understand this isn't every person. I get that. So a middle-class person, you know, they get their income, they pay their expenses first, then they do their wants. That's what you see most people that you interact with do. Again, no discussion about investing. I talked about the fact that when I was at Duke Energy as a manager, HR called me and I had to give those presentations to the guys because we had a, I think it was a hundred percent, five, five percent match or no, a hundred percent up to 5% on your 401k. So you're getting 5% of your salary or 6%, I think it even was a hundred percent match and half the people weren't participating. They were all in their early twenties. It's like, guys, do you understand how this works? Even if you're not an investor, just, you know, put it in a money market fund. You're getting 100% return every payday when they take the money out. They're matching that amount up to 6% of your salary. Why aren't you taking advantage? You can't put away 6%. Your bills, no, what it is is what they want to do. They want to go out. They want to spend money. They want to, I get it. I get it. But you got to get that grub stake, okay? And you're wasting time that you need in those 20s, 30s, and 40s. That's 30 years of compounding right there. By the time you're 50, you could be a millionaire. But this is how rich people think. They get their income, and the first thing they do is think about how much they're going to pull out for their investing because they understand they're always going to have expenses, okay? You're always going to have expenses, so that can't be an excuse. You're always going to have bills. And then after they pay themselves and pay their expenses, then they address their wants. So you see the difference, and again, these are generalizations, I know. And some people get lucky. I get it, okay? But for the average person, this is how it applies. You've got to start. You've got to get whatever you got to do. You've got to get that initial grub stake together. You've got to do it. You've got to pay yourself first. Don't make an excuse. Even if it's a dollar a week, do something. Get in the habit. Get into the mindset. Don't be like, you know, Jane says... You know, you're going to do it tomorrow because you won't ever do it tomorrow. Start today. Take the change jug that's been piling up. Go to coin, go to the store, dump it into the Kroger thing. Get your money. Start with that 20 bucks. Whatever you got to do, do it.
Get a part-time job. That's my advice. Because if you don't do it, you know, you're just burning, you're just burning daylight. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Um, lots of information. Hope this was helpful to you. Again, I'd like to hear, hear from the Germans out there or any other Europeans. Read, do me a favor, read the article from Seymour Hirsch. Tell me what you think. Um, you know, even if you even if you think it's not possible that the U.S. did that, do you really think that the U.S. has its interests ahead of the e the people in Europe's interests? What are we trying to do? And then again, I'm interested in hearing this from anybody. How does this situation in Europe, in Ukraine specifically, end? How are you? How do we get this to? Because eventually, it's going to end. So how do we get it there without escalating it or creating more and more death and destruction for the people of Ukraine? Okay, so uh, I'd be interested in hearing those comments. If you want to come at me, you can come at me. I mean, everybody has their opinion. They have their view. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I've said this before. So uh, anyways, appreciate the uh, viewership and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.